You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. There's been a lot of talk about who should replace Daniel Craig now that he is retiring as James Bond. And I think I have found the perfect person. He's handsome, charming, brilliant, and multilingual. His name is Nicholas Niarcos. And if only he could put down his computer long enough to play the part. Niarcos is a journalist. His choice of unglamorous and at times dangerous profession is all the more surprising when you learn about his background. His grandfather, Stavros Niarcos, founded the international shipping company Niarcos Limited. I first came across Niarcos in the New Yorker magazine. His recent piece, Buried Dreams, covers the exploitation of workers in the cobalt mines in Central Africa. In his reporting, Niarcos exposed the dangerous and exploitative conditions for the workers in Congolese cobalt mines, many of whom are children, as well as those that stand to profit handsomely off the mines. In addition to being a reporter at large at The New Yorker, Niarcos's work has appeared in Time, The New York Times, and The Nation. I think that all the places that I try and work for require a sort of serious journalistic engagement. And that's what I really seek for when I look for a publication to write for. The New Yorker, I find the fact-checking process, I was a fact-checker for, for, for many years, I think that's a very engaging thing to deal with. I like working directly with the fact-checkers. I liked being a fact-checker, learning you know, a great deal about a subject you know, for a couple of weeks and then, and then sort of moving on. And actually, I found... Now, as a reporter, it actually enhances my reporting. It leads me down new alleys when I'm trying to sort of verify things to the kind of 100% percent kind yeah. of thing. When you, when you fact-check, you did it for how long? I did it for five years, actually. All, well, almost five years. Four years and 11 months or something did, like did, that. Did they confine you to fact-checking in a certain realm, or did you fact-check a lot of different things? Uh, I fact-checked a lot of different things because I speak French and Italian, obviously, when there were stories which required those languages. 
I would I I would be sort of you were the fact you were the go to fact checker sometimes yeah and when and when you would do the fact checking or, or I mean were were there ones you enjoyed more like ones that were like deep and intense and scientific or cultural whatever and did you did you didn't love you didn't love doing the fact checking of the profile of some actress or you enjoyed all of it. I enjoyed all of it. You know, listen, I worked on a piece on TMZ by Nick Schmidl, which was a kind of investigative piece, and that was a kind of crazy experience. It was kind of more... How so? Well, I don't know, sort of more, you know, kind of input and sort of back and forth and lawyers and whatever than most other pieces. You know, sometimes it would do pieces on Iraq and Afghanistan and so on, and, and they would require less, less Iraq, sort of lawyering. Iraq, Afghanistan, Gaddafi or Harvey Levin? Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, whiplash. Um, but no, I loved working with, I mean, the writers there are, are great. Patrick Keefe, Sarah Stillman, Rachel Lviv. I, I mean, these, this kind Rebecca of like... Rebecca Mead. Rebecca Mead. Re- Rebecca was actually a, uh, a sort of wonderful early person who I, I fact-checked quite, quite early on in my career there and then kind of ended up sort of doing quite a lot with her, which was quite fun. And we did a piece, I remember, on Dolce & Gabbana, and we just had like a lot of back and forth with Dolce & Gabbana's people, and it was just, it was sort of hilarious because... Sometimes, you know, those sort of fashion stories and so on. I mean, if you're talking with people in government and so on, they kind of, they have this attitude that, oh, well, it's a story, it's going to go away. Whereas, you know, if it's a big fashion house and, you know, this is one of the few times that it appears in the New Yorker, you know, this year or in the, you know, in five years or whatever, they they realize that that's going to stick with the... the this is marketing yeah. for them. Yeah, exactly. To a degree. Um, well, I mean, I'm obviously an avid reader of The New Yorker. The thing I tend to see when I, when I was thinking about your article and, and budgets and cost and things like that is that, you know, the magazine has obviously a menu of different articles. There might be a profile. There might be, you know, there's obviously the shouts and murmurs and uh, talk of the town and so forth. But of the body of the pieces that are not criticism or art or what have you, there seems to be a limit, I would imagine, of the number of pieces that are this expansive because it must be expensive, correct? You know, I started this piece reporting it for, as a book, and then so it, kind book of, it started as a as a sort of book reporting, and then it, and then it kind of developed into New Yorker reporting. So actually, I funded some of it from my own money, and then I used some of the New Yorker what the New Yorker paid me to to, to sort of continue the reporting. Mm-hmm. But actually, you know, this was a sort of budgetless piece at the beginning. You first became aware of this when and how. I first became aware of this issue around cobalt mining because of somebody called Dan Gertler. He is a mining billionaire who has sort of made his wealth in the DRC. And he actually made a lot of money by... He's from where originally? He's from Israel originally. He came to DRC. It's a crazy story. He came when he was about 23. And by the time he was 26, he was in charge of the, the Congo's entire diamond export. And then... Various sort of human rights groups groups were like, wait, well, what's happening here? He was very close to the ruling family. And so he was kind of booted off that. And Congo said, look, listen, look, we've, we've dealt with this problem. And suddenly it turned out that he had a bunch of copper and cobalt mines down in the south, which he seemed to be basically, and this is very well documented by the Carter Center and sort of Human Rights Watch and various other institutions. Basically, he was selling them on for the ruling family to finance their elections. So he'd basically flipped the mines. And you became aware of him how? I became aware of him. I have a very good friend of mine who uh, works in mining. And I was sort of casting around for stories 
you know, related to Africa, related to corruption and so on. And he said, well, listen, you, I mean, look no this further a good one than for this him, guy. Right? Yeah, look exactly. No and, and also, actually, Patrick Keefe, who's been a great sort of inspiration to me and I, who I right. worked with, actually, at The New Yorker. And you had Alex Gibney on the show and, he, right. he, you know, they collaborated on the opioid story. I, I actually, ran into Patrick on the street the other day, yeah. by the way. Oh, really? Okay. With exactly. his family I, down in the village. And I, and I just said to myself, my God, I thought the documentary was sensational. Yeah. Sensational. So he'd done a piece on Benny Steinmetz, who was a Israeli mining billionaire. I think he's he's currently been arrested or he's on trial in Switzerland. And he had basically taken control of an iron ore mine called Simendu, which is in Guinea. And so Patrick had done that story, and that was a kind of great inspiration. And then I, I sort of went to Patrick, and Patrick said, listen, you should also follow this story. It's a great idea. I've always wanted to do Gertler. And then I arrived in Congo, and I realized that the Gertler story was very interesting, but it wasn't the whole story. And actually, what became more interested, interesting to me is the lives of these people, just the hellish existence of a, a cobalt miner, an artisanal cobalt miner, I have to be precise here, in, in the southern DRC. Now, I read the article, and you become suspicious or you become uh, enlightened, if you will, to the idea that huge swaths of this continent are being exploited for these kinds of minerals. And, and, and if I may say so, I'll let you speak to this. Not just the greatest hits, like petroleum-based things, but the, the, these cobalt for lithium for modern technology, chips, photovoltaic, whatever they may be used for. But batteries, mostly, correct? The lithium batteries. So is it safe to say you talk about Guinea, you talk about DRC? Is this happening all over Africa where these minerals exist? I mean, American, Israeli, it doesn't matter. Pirates are when they're trying to grab as much of it as they can? Well, it depends where, obviously, some places are better regulated than others. Right. Um, Who's doing a good job of regulating, if you can say? I think, for example, Zambia has had a better track record, although now the sort of influx of Chinese wealth into Zambia has sort of upended some of that. And what are people seeking there? Copper as well. So it's actually on the border with the RC. When I was reporting some of this stuff, I actually flew to Zambia to meet a sort of renegade Congolese politician before he was traveling back into the DRC. So, yeah, no, it's known as the Copper Belt, and it's it, it's a sort of large part, uh, the part of The scene between the two countries. Exactly, right. exactly. And the other big one is, is, is coltan, actually, and that's sort of been the focus of uh, a lot of human rights work because it is largely mined by sort of army types and sort of warlords in the northeast of the DRC. And coltan is used in capacitors, which are sort of key for computers and batteries. That's also been a big issue, and people confuse that with cobalt. And actually... What's happening there is is slightly different from cobalt, which is a kind of more of a mechanized, sort of legitimized type of trade. Well, the thing that also struck me in terms of any store like this where there's danger, describe to me what you had to do in advance security-wise. You don't just land at the airport and, say, get in an Uber and say, take me to, you know, Cobalt Town. There must have been a lot of preparatory steps you took and security steps you took, if, I'm assuming. And then talk about when you first got there for the first time, what, what went on. Okay, so yeah, the security steps, I mean, I've traveled to quite a lot at this point of countries which sort of have different complicated security profiles, places like Yemen, Western Sahara. In fact, this southern part of the DRC, you know, there is the threat always of randomized violence. But I, you know, had looked into it. I'd spoken to, to a couple of people who'd been there. I'd spoken to a couple of journalists. And I, I don't think there was a kind of threatening or kind of looming threat. You of, weren't afraid? 
I wasn't particularly afraid. That you know, sometimes traveling on the road at night, you'd be stopped at roadblocks, and there would be sort of policemen with guns, and they'd be drunk, and you know, then you get a little bit nervous. And then we were sort of held up in broad daylight. So I traveled with a local journalist called Jeff Kazadi, who's a who's a wonderful, wonderful guy, and he's he's he was a great resource. He he worked as a translator. He was incredibly sort of resourceful as well on 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 the ground, and he sort of knew quite a few of the operators, and he'd worked with I believe CNN before and some other journalists who who had been down to do stories like this or to do other types of stories in southern DRC. He works for a, a mining trade publication. So, you know, oftentimes he wanted to sort of look further into stories, but because he works for an industry publication, it wasn't the type of journalism that they were interested in. So I contacted Jeff. I also contacted another journalist, Ben Nyemba, who who's based out of there, and he was interested in this. So the first time I went, I went with Jeff and Ben, we kind of thought about the security risks and we we discussed the different types of issues along the road. Sometimes there were bandits and so on. But usually, if you're traveling in the daytime, you're fairly safe along that road. So when I first arrived in the south, I'd, I'd been in Kinshasa for a bit. And in many ways, the south is much less hectic than Kinshasa. And I arrived on a local flight, so we didn't have to deal with customs. I stayed in a sort of very downbeat hotel, which was an interesting experience, to say the least. There were a lot of women coming in at night and leaving in the morning. Um, but uh, uh, afterwards... That's everywhere. Which is everywhere, <laughs> exactly. And then I stayed the next two or three times I was there in more kind of like hotels that sort of mining execs had made their home. It was, you know, kind of immediately there with people at the bar kind of talking about their sort of the, you know, the greatest hits of, you know, copper mines and the, and cobalt mines. Some of the work, that, kind of some of the useful work done there? Yeah, and those are sort of like off-the-record chats sure. usually, but, but it helps you get, get such a good sort of context around this stuff. You know, what else was very use, useful is that I visited a uh, mining uh, conference there as well and sort of met a lot of people in, Who in the that? field. It was hosted by a South African firm, but it was kind of visited by all the sort of local potentates and so on. It was a sort of eye-opening experience because people are very aware of the problem of artisanal mining. And you have to make the distinction between artisanal mining and industrial mining. So artisanal mining is something somewhere between 10 and 30% of Congo's production every year. It really fluctuates depending on you know, supply, demand, so on. And the rest is industrial, which is done much in the way of large mining firms anywhere else in the world. And, and do the industrials want to put the artisanals out of work? The industrials would probably prefer that the artisanals were not there because there are serious human rights issues with some of the artisanal mines, which with many of the artisanal mines, I would say. Some are led by cooperatives, and those cooperatives are, are sort of better about safety than other sort of non-cooperative managed artisanal mines. However, the big problem is that there's just been a huge influx of people into that region. It's like a gold rush. It's a huge gold rush. And, and you really feel like just people are arriving every day, that kind of thing. There's a train that comes down from a place called Mabuji Mai, which is in the middle of Congo. And that is a place in which there used to be a huge amount of diamond mining. And that's been sort of woefully mismanaged and the industry has kind of fallen to pieces. So a lot of people who had some mining experience now sort of getting on that train which goes through the sort of jungles and wilds of central Congo and comes to Lumabashi and sort of people are just sort of hanging off the side of that train and it 
comes, you know, every two months or something like that. Nobody really the sh- the schedule basically works on you know whenever it's completely full or whenever they can sort of get the engine running. And so with that, you know, people come and then the industrial mines are sort of run by very few people, so they don't have the capacity to absorb absorb that labor force. Exactly, they don't they they can't hire. So. Yeah, I think that you arrive I, to participate in artisanal mining. Exactly, you arrive because you think you're going to get rich, and there's just like a lot of stories about it, and so on. And you arrive, and there's nothing to do apart from artisanal mining, basically. And people really exploit that; they get paid nothing. I mean, it's it's. Some people say that there have been people who who made lots and lots of money, but I actually found that quite difficult to believe after spending two months there. I just I. So you went the one on the one trip for two months. So I went on one trip for a month, then I went on another trip for ten days, and then I was there for about almost a month the next time. So right. yeah, two months. So when you arrive and um, you are in the more decent hotel with people who seem to be related to the whole enterprise, and you can chit chat with them, is the idea that when you arrive, you don't go right into the belly of the beast and go to where the artisanal mining is at, at full at full throttle. You kind of work your way toward that. Is that, did you take a few days before you get into the into the pits, so to speak? Depends, actually, on on the different trips. On my second trip, I went straight to the artisanal mining right. because I'd spent a lot of time, you know, talking with Seth Africans about, yes. you know, the benefits of copper mining for the area. So, you know, I had all that material, and 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 I wanted to really uh, focus on the the artisanal miners. Who are people that sounded like they had not the right idea, but maybe the better ideas about how this should be handled? What should happen there for the greater good of everybody? So, there's a Catholic charity called Good Shepherd Colwesi. And they've been incredibly sort of outspoken and sort of quite sort of research focused as well around some of these issues. They've put forward this plan which says, listen, you need to develop other types of industry because you have to understand this as like a as a cycle of which corruption is only a part. There's also just the basic fact of poverty and and need. So they have suggested that agriculture would be a a way of... um, engaging the local population. In fact, it's a very fertile region as well. And something like 90% of Congo's food is imported. So there's this kind of... From other areas from, in the region. From Zambia, from yeah, from other areas of the region. So there's this... Kind, and, and import taxes are huge and people are making money every step of the way and so on and so forth, often not Congolese. So they say, listen, why don't the Congolese grow their own food here? Why don't people work on farms? And so I think that that's a... You know, there are large businesses that obviously invested in this. I think that's actually something which would be positive for them to do so. There are also some other groups like the Fair Cobalt Alliance, and then there's another uh, Chinese group. The UN doesn't have a permanent presence, I don't think, in in Colwesi. Actually, a lot of what they do in Congo is to do with rebels in the north, and then they assisted with some war crimes tribunals in a city which was not too far away. So they do mainly kind of like uh, armed conflict type stuff there. I didn't see any sort of UN involvement, but I could, I, you know, there could be, there could be a, yeah, there could, there could be a UN office that focuses on this, but it doesn't seem to be a, a main priority because they're focused on, you know, some of what, the, what year did you go there? I went in 2019. And right before the, about right before, how convenient for you. Yeah, I know. Well, the, uh, wonderful. And what is the national government to the extent you could, you could ascertain when you were there? What's their position on what's going on there? So the national government makes kind of these overtures over and over again, saying we can't have child labor, whatever. And then the local government will say the same thing and they're like, we're cleaning up the mines. And then they use, you know, these kind of mine cleanup activities in order to basically seize more parts of the mines for themselves and 
you know, kind of co-opt local cooperatives and so on. And I, I document that in the piece. And at the moment, there's a bit of a power struggle happening down in that region. And it's very unclear to me what's actually happening in terms of like who's getting pieces of the mm-hmm. pie. But the fact is that it still continues, actually. I was I was speaking to a um, friend of mine who's a photographer, Hugh Kinsella Cunningham, who's done great, great work in, in, in the DRC. He was there last weekend and he saw basically exactly the same condition. So it's not improving. But I'm assuming for people who don't understand the way these things work, it's that you have the corporate mining, you have the the industrial mining, which, of course, the government's going to sanction that because they're going to make a lot of money. I'm assuming just like the drug trade in other parts of the world, in, in South America, for example, they don't want it to go away. They, they can't make it go away because there'll be just so much illegal activity and violence and bloodshed. Do they sit there and say, and they just write it off and say, well, we have to tolerate a certain amount of artisanal mining just to keep these people quiet and peaceful? Yeah, I mean, I think... They can't make it go away. Yeah, I think sometimes they'll say that and sometimes they say, well, artisanal mining can't exist. And it was funny, I interviewed the governor at the time and he basically said the same. He said both of those things in the same interview. <laughs> so I don't think they've really understood how to deal with this problem. And and it is, it's a very, very complex issue. And I, I, I wouldn't say that I have I have the answers, but I just don't think it's being engaged with in a particularly robust manner. You also have to think about it in terms of, you know, the, the industrial mines which were bought Many of them were bought through this guy, Gertler, who's now on the U.S. sanctions list. Actually, Trump de-sanctioned him for a bit. <laughs> Who knows why? And then and then he got re-sanctioned. And basically, you have a system that relies on this corruption, and those funds are not going back to the people. And then you have uh, a situation in which, you know, the mines are sold to big Western companies and big Western companies, you know, maybe don't participate directly in that, but they work with people who are certainly questionable. Actually, it's not, and forgive me, big Western companies is not entirely correct. A lot of Chinese companies actually. Well, I want to get to that too. What are the Chinese doing there? And how long have they, I mean, obviously, when I think of China, I think of a place that is obviously a vast region of land and, and varied geologically and topographically and meteorologically, what have you. I mean, it's China's enormous. They don't have those resources in their own territory? So something like 70% of the world's cobalt is actually in DRC. It's like 3.4 million tons, which is a huge, huge amount of uh, cobalt. It's there. And, you know, there are nickel mines in Indonesia, which also produce cobalt as a byproduct. And it's interesting, if you look, one of China's biggest battery manufacturers just bought one of the biggest nickel mines in Indonesia. So they're really kind of making this resource Mm -hmm. grab. And they've understood how, I think... Ivan Glazenberg, who's the head of Glencore, one of the big, or was the head of Glencore, said this summer, China Inc. has realized how important cobalt is, and and they're they're kind of starting to buy everything up. And where do Western manufacturers, including the U.S., where do they get their cobalt from? From the Chinese. From the Chinese. They're not out buying their own. No, they're not out buying their own. They're not trying to develop that resource for themselves. Yeah. BMW is, is, I think, one of the few that doesn't buy from the Chinese. They buy most of their cobalt from a cobalt-only mine in Morocco. But that's way too small to supply the entire world. Journalist Nicholas Niarcos. If you like hearing about the inner workings of some of the greatest journalistic outlets of our time, check out my interview with New Yorker editor David Remnick. The magazine is not the magazine if it doesn't have a sense of humor. You're not in business to depress the hell out mm-hmm. of the reader unremittingly. Mm-hmm. It's like a band having a set list. If you do everything 
It's all 16th notes from yeah. Antigua. It's all in well, a DeVita. Or, or yeah. well, you sound like the Ramones, yeah. although I've, I've heard of worse <laughs> things. So you want some variation in tone, in voice. And that's your responsibility, you feel. I, I feel all of it's my responsibility. Hear more of my conversation with David Remnick in our archives at heresthething.org. After the break, Nicholas Niarcos and I talk about his background and the big story he nearly broke in high school. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Nicholas Niarcos, who could be living a life of privilege, instead can be found in the Democratic Republic of the Congo reporting on human rights violations. Niarcos grew up in London and came to the United States to attend Yale. His family helped him develop his interest in journalism. I grew up in the UK. You grew um, up in London? Yeah, I was born here, but grew up in London. You were born here? Yeah. Your father's Greek? Father's Greek. You're growing up in this famous family, and your father is obviously the son of the guy that was the, the, the big dog there in the shipping business, Stavros Niarchos. But what was it like in your home and your family? Was where you ended up going in a career something that was likely? 
Were everybody very interested in politics and current affairs? And was your dad like rabid about that? Yeah, my dad's sort of very interested in, in current affairs. And, you know, my mum's family as well. My grandfather is a writer and my great grandparents, m- many of them were writers and travellers and many such things. And then actually in high school, I did this anti-school uh, newspaper And we actually ended up very, very close to blowing the lid on this kind of strange story where Chinese officials were sort of paying this intermediary character to get their kids into the school that I went to, which is called Harrow. It's a kind of very stiff boarding school. So we ended up almost writing the story and the newspaper was shut down. Two years later, the Financial Times, suddenly the guy is revealed to be somehow connected with MI6. And like one of the governors in China basically was sort of taken down by it. And this was kind of Xi Jinping kind of flexing his muscles for the first time. We had been so close to doing that story. You know, the only reason that we didn't didn't run it was because the school had basically said, like, you're not publishing this. So, yeah, I think that was the first time I really like saw the power of journalism. And and it was funny because they banned, the, it was hard copy and then people sort of hid it behind their um, notice boards in their dorm rooms and then kind of passed it around. And, you know, by three days after publication, even though the school had dest- destroyed most of the copies, you know, everybody had read it. It was this kind of great sort of affirmation of the power of journalism. Good start. A noble start. And your mother is? Irish English. Is she really? Yeah. I went to Dublin once with my ex-wife and my daughter. And we were there, it was Christmas Eve and St. Stephen's Day, and we were staying at the uh, the Shelburne in Dublin, I guess it is, the famous hotel. And the, they said to me, oh, you've made a mistake now coming this week because everything's closed. They said, this week everything's closed, Christmas Eve and St. Stephen's Day. Everything's closed. Even the Guinness is closed, they said. <laughs> they were like, that's rare. I mean, even the Guinness factory is closed. And we're like, well, shit, what are we going to do when we're here? So, but you, you know, obviously, when I saw your byline, then I saw your name. You don't have to be my age to know, you know, the two great shipping families. And yours just as recognizable to my generation as the other one. But you lived in London and you first came, you were born here, grew up in London. And when did you come back here to live? How old were you? I came back here for college. To go to school, to go to school. And you decided to stay. I decided to stay. Now, yeah. why do you want to live here and not from London? I'm know. the opposite. I want to live in London and leave New York as soon as possible. Really? Oh, yeah. I love London. Love, I love, love New York. London. You do. Uh, yeah. You do. Listen, I, I feel like London, there's a you know, there's this kind of idealized London of my sort of teenage years, which had like a lot of kind of relaxed hangout places, which is sort of shut down. And, and it's, it's easier for you here? Well, no, it's just it's sort of become it's become this kind of like very, I don't know, this kind of... Uh, fake version of itself in a way and i feel like it's like a lot London of, yeah and it's a lot of you know like heritaging and like new i companies. love that <laughs> <laughs> i want to live in a castle yeah, i watch <laughs> the crown and i'm like oh god that would work for me i could live there but when you finished school you decided to stay here and what were the first uh, jobs you got in journalism um so i worked at the nation describe that experience uh, I was a fact Katrina checker. is an old friend of mine. Katrina, Katrina's one. Now, when they're paying, no, when you, when you talk about budgets, no, so the so the nation comes out. <laughs> we were saying that looks like a college newspaper. Yeah, on that very very less expensive paper, and so for them, obviously they 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 have their budgetary considerations, but they're irreplaceable in terms of the reporting. Did, did you enjoy that experience? It was them? a great experience. I worked directly with Katrina as her fact checker, and and with her late husband Stephen Cohen, and it was the time of the the Syrian chemi- chemical weapons and Obama's red line, and so on, and they were the, you know. 
I was called up on a Sunday evening. I think this was one of my first weeks there. I was called up on a Sunday evening, and they were like, okay, you've got to be on t- in touch with the OPCW, you know, four o'clock tomorrow morning kind of thing. It was a, a fantastic experience. And also the nation treats its interns very well, which was something I hadn't necessarily always seen in the UK. And, you know, you were paid minimum wage and, and there was a kind of spirit of like community and activism there, which was which was really nice. And actually, by the end of my time there, I had developed this story based on a lead that I'd gotten at journalism school about this lawyer who'd been wiretapped called Robert Gottlieb. And he was representing a guy called Addis Madunjanin. And their conversations had been wiretapped by the FBI. And that story hadn't been reported. So I sort of reported that that out a little bit and then sort of came to them and said, listen, I've been working on this in my spare time. And they said it sort of took a chance and published me. L- looking back on it, I mean, that's that's quite a sort of uh, bull sort of risk taking. But I really appreciated that because that was my first sort of big investigative type uh, magazine story. When you worked for The Guardian, did you go back to the UK? No. So I've written for The Guardian sort of independently as a freelancer. And then I worked at The Guardian as a researcher, like right when I graduated college. What period of time did you work with The Huffington Post? So I started writing for The Huffington Post in college. And then I kind of wrote for them for a year, two afterwards. You know, for me, finding sources, you know, sometimes I read The Times and I think, well, there's The Times again. And then sometimes I read The Times and I say, this is not The Times anymore. You know, I mean, I get really, really worried about their priorities, you know. But The the New Yorker has been, for me, you know, over the arc of many years, the most reliable in terms of its integrity and what they cover and stories they tell. And you had sent me the article from John Lee Anderson, which I think, which when I, as I was reading it, I think I read this article when, when it first came out. Now, that article about South America, and I'd read other articles and books about the work of Thunai and the uncontacted Indians and so forth. You know, I would imagine for you that, that and, and writers like Anderson who write these broad and very complex pieces, there's no shortage of stories for you to cover. I mean, you must be constantly having to make tough decisions as to which ones you, because when they come to you, they don't sign. They ask you if you want to do it, correct? No, no, no. I was, as a freelance, I pitched to places, actually. Oh, you, so, oh, yeah, so, oh, so you pitched I'm, to I'm them? I'm always pitching. Oh, I, okay, so you, you pitched to Remnick and his staff that you want to do the piece based on your beginnings of your book. Yeah. But I would imagine, again, with the, the cornucopia of such stories that are out there, you must be constantly wondering which one you want to do. Are there, are there, are there many ideas you have for this kind of thing? Absolutely, yeah. There, there, there are many ideas. Part of it is also sort of editorial interest. I was reading Joan Didion on El Salvador last night, and she was talking about when she went, which I think is 1982. And she talked about how it was a period in which it was like a file and hold. So, you know, you'd file your story and then it would be held by editors because, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of interest in El Salvador. I've actually seen that quite a lot with Yemen, funnily enough, which is a conflict that's um, been going on since 2015. You know, that's really something that's very, very difficult to get onto people's radar. So it's actually also about getting those stories onto editors' radar. And there's a story that I want to do about these complicated cooperations between U.S. forces in Africa and local forces that have led to a lot of civilian casualties and don't seem to be being authorized on the highest level. But that's firstly a hard story to like get rolling and to get sourced up. So I'm trying to sort of find more sources on that. So if there are any listeners, please get in touch. So everywhere you go around the world, Africa, South America, what have you, you see this exploitation for resources and for minerals. And I'm just wondering if we'll ever see the day when this country decides to come out on the right side of that and try to prevent some of that. Like, you know, what happened in, in, in Ecuador, it's just, it's tragic, it's tragic. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, that there's a, there's so much emphasis on sort of labor rights here. And I listened to your show with uh, Lorena Gonzalez and, and she, you know, she was talking about how, you know, people getting minimum wage, wage in California on farms and things like that. And I think that there is a lot of good movement on that in the States. But somehow I feel like We've just sort of exported all these issues, and it, and it's become this it's a set of rules for us and a set of rules for yeah, them. Yeah, exactly, and that's kind of become the sort of wages of globalization. Journalist Nicholas Niarcos, if you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back. Nicholas Niarcos talks about some of the more challenging aspects of his reporting in the Congo. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit bartesian.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Nicholas Niarcos, New Yorker article Buried Dreams, exposed the way Congolese cobalt miners are exploited. In his reporting for the piece, he witnessed many gut-wrenching scenes. 
Yeah, I think the toughest things that I saw were around the kids. You know, there, you see a lot of kids with deformities, firstly, because of the radioactive nature of the cobalt dust, heavy metals poisoning. In fact, actually, this is something that one of the fact checkers on the piece, Katy Nojimbadan, alerted me to, that paternal exposure to some of these materials is actually associated very heavily with birth defects. Hmm. So that was very sad, talking to parents, to wives of people who'd been killed in these landslides at mines and then obviously you know going to a, a school for sort of kids who ha- had been art- actually run by Good Shepherd so kids who had been artisanal miners and then just like chatting with this kid Zicky who's in the piece as well I mean he was working in mines since he was three basically and just the sort of pain and suffering and then there was this moment where I kind of you know showed him my phone. I said, listen, like the new iPhone is going for $1,200 and everybody there knows it's going into batteries. Something like 50% of the cobalt mine there just goes into lithium-ion batteries. And I said to him, listen, like, how do you feel about this? And he was just like, I feel terrible. And I think he just had this sort of moment of realization, which I really didn't want to prompt. But he, he sort of thought, you know, how can people sort of sanction such violence against people like me. When Remnick was on the show, he said the New York Times is the weather. He wakes up in the morning and the first thing he does is read the Times of his whole entire media diet. What's your media diet when you're up in the morning? I would say the Times as well. (laughs) I I like listening also to the BBC uh, Today program. It's such a good program and it's just very good to keep up with news from the UK as well. No TV news? No, I don't have a TV. I'm I'm one of those people. (laughs) You know, actually, while I was in Africa, I really, you know, reporting actually in the Sahara and so on, like most of the places you get France 24, France 24, you know, everywhere, everywhere you go. And I kind of, when I'm in Africa, I watch a lot of France 24 and uh, RFI, which is uh, Radio France Internationale. And that's great as well. I mean, they're just, they're, they're really like, I don't know, I, I find that sort of French quality of journalism, maybe sometimes influenced by French foreign policy, but actually they, they, they go very deep into a lot of issues that I'm interested in. The other publication that I wanted to mention is uh, Jeune Afrique, which is a sort of, uh, I think it's France-based, where they cover lots of Africa, especially uh, French-speaking Africa in depth. And again, often with a kind of French twist or French foreign policy twist. What's the status of the book? At the moment, I'm in the middle of writing it, reporting it, traveling. Um, You're still working on it? Yeah, exactly. When are you guys going to come out? I hope to work on it all of next year and then finish it the next year, basically. Right. Yeah. Because you're doing other things. Because I'm doing other things, and I'm, I'm also just doing a lot of reporting on this as well. What's a story you wouldn't tell? What's a story that, that people suggested to you and you thought, that's not for me? Have you, have you been asked to do profiles of movie stars and things like that to get a paycheck and to, and to work, and you just, that didn't interest you? What yeah. don't you want to do? I think sort of gossip and sort of prying into people's personal <laughs> lives, I think, probably, probably things that you also probably wouldn't like. So You don't know the half of it. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying this to be kind. I mean, you're this incredibly smart guy, and I loved your piece. I can't wait for the book to come out. Do you have any appetite for documentary film and filmmaking? I'd love to do documentary film and filmmaking. Um, actually, when I graduated from Columbia, I went and made a uh, mini-doc about Roma gypsy trumpet players in Serbia, and Serbian nationalists. And that was a really, really fun experience. But, you know, writing has always been my first love. 
I feel like the work you're doing, I mean, these stories are the stories people need to hear. Where there was injustice like this and where there's this, this exploitation, we have a set of rules here in this country for our own, and there's things that we would never allow. We'd be screaming from the mountaintops if we had this radioactive situation and children being content. And we, and we have things like that in this country now. But, but when it is exposed, when it is brought to light, I'll never forget, you know, being a New Yorker, one of the things I loved about being a New Yorker is the indignation and the outrage are never packed away. People carry a little bottle of it with them. And when the needles all washed up and all the medical waste washed up on the shores of New Jersey years ago, it was on the front page of the paper. People went insane. They were like the beaches of New Jersey and all these families go there and all this contaminated. I mean, people went nuts. And of course, writing books is, is important, but that medium of film is another layer that you should really, really consider. You know, I've written about art. I've written about, I, I was a restaurant reviewer while I was a fact checker at The New Yorker. So I've. Where'd you review restaurants? For, for The New Yorker. In the city? Yes. Exactly. How long did you do that? Two years. It was great. And I did bars as well. It was fun because, you know, at the, at, the, at the time, you know, they would give you a couple of hundred bucks to go to restaurants. and I know. did Del Posto mm -hmm. with Frank Bruni. Okay. Uh, we went to one of his sittings and oh, Maureen wow. Dowd said, would you like to come with Frank and I and a fourth person? He's going to review Del Posto. And I said, okay, she said, well, here's the rules. He orders for everybody because he has to eat everything on the menu. So the four of you have to have what he tells you to eat. And they're going to pass the plates or whatever. And you can all sample. But you, he's going to do the ordering because he must eat every item on the menu. He goes back four and five times and blah, blah, blah. And, and he, he took me through the whole reality of Frank's life. So what was it like? Were you going four and five times to a restaurant? or No, no, no. no you no. go two times to the restaurant. Uh... Did they eventually catch on who you were? No, not no. really. But w w one of the best experience, uh, experiences doing that, I went to a Somali restaurant in Harlem, and then I came back after the review. I, I live up in Harlem, so I kind of was trying to rep Harlem re restaurants. And I came back after the review, and there were, like, lines around the block. It was great. It was wow. really fun. It was, and it's a wonderful place. I stand by my review. So that was a nice moment. Do you identify as Greek, Irish-British, American, a journalist, or all of the above? Well, all of the above, but I, I, I think that my Greek roots are very, very important to me, and I, I, I feel very, very strongly that, you know, Greece is a troubled place, but also somewhere where one can do a lot, a lot of good. I like the, the spirit of Greeks and Greeks abroad and this kind of journeying spirit. There's a poem by uh, uh, Kosatinos Kavafis called Ithaca, which is probably the most famous modern Greek poem. And he talks about like hope as you set out for Ithaca. To, so you're sort of setting out for coming back home as Odysseus. You uh, hope that your journey is a long one. You, so you hope that you have this kind of like journey, which is full of adventures and cyclops and Lystragonians and so on. So I, I like that sort of aspect. And I think I probably sort of see myself in that mold as well, I suppose. Journalist Nicholas Niarchos. This episode was produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, Maureen Hoban, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm late. I'm late. Three very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from undercover tourists. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from undercover tourists and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with undercover tourists now and save. UndercoverTourist.com If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 